Welcome along to this bite-sized edition of Tax and Lunch. Thanks for joining me. I'm Vincent Lachardi. You're listening to the podcast for tax advisors to high net worth individuals, wealthy family groups and private clients. I'm really excited that you're joining me for this episode. Don't forget to subscribe and share this podcast with your team so they can also gain the inside perspective. Let's listen in. Thanks again for joining with me. This is the March edition of the uh, Tax and Lunch with respect to Section 100A of the 1936 Tax Act. We're actually going to be running through a number of ATO publications today, and we're very fortunate to have a special guest from the ATO, uh, Chris Ryan, who is the National Director of the Tax Avoidance Task Force at the ATO. In particular, uh, Chris focuses uh, quite heavily in the area of trust, and his name will be very familiar to many of you because uh, his name is uh, dotted all over uh, the publications, particularly three out of four of those publications with Justin Dearness uh, from TCN. So we'll, we'll get into uh, things straight away. Again, my apologies that it's taken a, a bit of time to, to get cracking. As always, the CPD and CLE certificates will be distributed over the next few days. I will be distributing the slides uh, from today as well. We do have a number of ATO slides and HWL slides, so they'll be coming out uh, to you as well. As always, you're most welcome to uh, ask questions throughout the session. It will be interactive. Chris will be providing us his insight and input, which will be extremely valuable. Please, if possible, send those questions uh, through the chat box to panellists. You don't need to send them to everyone. I think we've got probably three or 400 people on the line today. So please send those uh, directly to the panellists. That would be fantastic. As always, as I've had to experience this afternoon, if there's a dropout, try, try, try again, uh, and you can log back in. As with my previous tax and lunches, uh, the presentation is not legal advice. In particular, in respect of Section 100A, it is a very technical area of law and nuances and small differences in the facts do matter. So it's very important, particularly with this presentation, that you seek the advice of an experienced legal practitioner. Just as an overview before I hand to Chris to introduce himself, uh, we will be going through uh, just at a high level, the mechanics and uh, a summary of Section 100A, what it does, what it does not do, and a high-level overview of the rules. Um, I won't be going through those in fine detail, mainly because they are very technical, but you've probably attended uh, a number of webinars over the last two or three weeks, and you can obviously do your own reading as to the specific mechanics of Section 100A. I find it to be a very interesting provision, mainly because every time you read it, you seem to find something new about how it might be able to apply, uh, might not be able to apply, the nuances of the provisions, where there's emphasis within the different sections, commas, etc. These are all things that really matter to the point where the definition um, of reimbursement agreement has around six or seven double negatives in it. And so it can be very difficult to work out, well, what's the provision really getting at? So hopefully we cover some of those items today for you as well. 
We'll obviously be hearing from Chris to get the ATO's perspective on these sorts of things. I've had a look obviously at the slides that Chris has prepared and it will be fantastic to get his insights on these things, particularly because it's been such a hot topic. In, it's almost come out of the blue um, in a way over the last um, three weeks. So that will be a great part of this session as well. Um, and I'd also like to take you through some practical, really practical examples. Uh, in particular, if your clients are under review or audit. Some of the things to be very aware of, and as I've been working through the publications by the ATO and the case law in this area, given that clients will bear the onus of proof in any uh, tax litigation, it is very, very difficult, I, well, I would envisage that it's very, very difficult to discharge the onus on some of the questions that Section 100A poses, and we'll get into that as well. And obviously, lastly, this will be largely interactive or as interactive as we can make it. And so that we will have a couple spots along the way for Q&A as well. Without further ado, I'll hand over to uh, Chris Ryan, National Director from the ATO for the Tax Avoidance Task Force. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Vincent. Um, yeah, look, so as you said, I found my fingerprints are all over uh, this guidance. Uh, I've been engaged in this piece of work for uh, quite a while. Um, <clears throat> but just as a bit of background, I, I'm national director in the, um, in the tax Task Force, but in particular in the trust stream of, uh, of that. So um, many of you might be familiar with um, uh, engagement uh, or compliance activities around top 500 and next 5,000. I don't um, sort of work in that space. I work in the, the trust space. In particular, I lead a number of teams that uh, undertake that compliance work, but also uh, we are involved in uh, forming administrative views and, and technical views on trust matters, um, working quite, quite closely with our counterparts in the, the tax council network. Um, <clears throat> so that's a, a little bit of background about me. Um, so I might, we might move on from there um, and we'll get into um, the presentation. Sure, so, that, that, that's fine, Chris. Let me know which uh, point you'd like me to jump to, to the ATO slides. Yeah, if you could do um, maybe the, the slide nine, thanks. Sure, no <clears throat> problem. So let's jump forward and then we'll, we'll jump back a little right. bit too. Thank you. So look, today, uh, like Vincent said, it'll be a practical session. There are four pieces of, of guidance. Uh, sorry, just the next slide, if you can. Um, there are four pieces of guidance that were released. I'm only going to be focusing on the draft PCG regarding Section 100A. Um, I will cover off on um, what's described in the Taxpayer Alert as a part of that as well, but I won't go into uh, you know, a, a detailed technical analysis under what's in the ruling or in the draft determination concerning Division 7A. Um, but this, this slide here sort of shows you what those four pieces of guidance are and has some links to them. But I think what's important is to explain why we've done this now. Um, and because as it sort of feels like it's come out of the blue um, for some practitioners, certainly, uh, but it is something that we've been working on for, for quite a while. And um, we have recognised it advisors do need guidance and do want guidance on these topics um, so they know that they're advising their clients appropriately 
so we have been working on this for quite a while, but um, one thing that occurred last year or the year before is COVID, and that has a, a massive disrupting effect on not just the ATA, but in particular clients and advisors, especially advisors who had to sort of pivot to help their clients um, you know, claim federal and state-based stimulus measures. And so due to that, we, we did put things on pause um, with, in terms of the release. Uh, <clears throat> but advisors were still asking us to release it, and we are cognizant that you know you can't drop a piece, um, a, a few guidance products like this on the 1st of June and expect taxpayers or advisors that sort of have an understanding of it too quickly and, and what it all means. And that's why we've released it recently. The advisors have plenty of time in the lead up to 30 June this year uh, to understand it. Importantly, though, on that point, most of the guidance um, doesn't apply from 30 June this year. It actually applies from 1 July. So although, um, <clears throat> as I said, you know, we want to have plenty of lead up time to 30 June, we felt that it's important that advisors have time to understand it and understand the, the forward um, impact on their clients as opposed to not just the current year as well. And we released this as a package, uh, all these together, because of the interconnected, interconnected relationship between all these, these pieces, uh, particularly the draft ruling and draft determination. Uh, <clears throat> because quite commonly, um, we know that advisors or clients put their um, MMP presentation to a company um, on DIVSEVA terms or on subtrust, and we felt that it was important to, to release those together rather than uh, separately and um, lead to advisors having to face a new set of changes um, and a new set of transitional rules laid down a track. So we felt uh, it's important that we do all of this together. Um, <clears throat> so we might move on. I'll just touch on um, the uh, application date. So if we go to the next slide. So I'll only touch on this briefly. The, the draft, um, draft ruling shares our view of how the law applies, and that will apply both before and after release. Um, but that is consistent with what we've already described in the past as to how we'd administer Section 100A. <clears throat> the next part there is the, the formal website guidance that we had, uh, the, the fact sheet released in 2014. That still continues in effect up until 30 June 2022. And then from 1 July 2022, the draft PCG will have effect. So as you can see there, the PCG showed that the earlier periods. And why that, why we've done that is if a, an arrangement um, for uh, a period up to and including PCG in 2022 uh, would have got a more favourable outcome under the PCG, then we'll apply that. So taxpayers and advisors get the benefit of, of both pieces of guidance for this, um, for this period. And then the last one down there is Division 7A. Now, the, the views in TR 2010-3 and PSLA 2010-4 will continue. Distributions made up to uh, and including the of June 2022. And then subject to the draft TD being finalised, it will apply from 1 July 2022. That's just sort of a, a bit of an overview, but I think, or I hope at least, this, um, this diagram helps to, to clarify those different dates. So we, we move on, please, Vince. So 100A. Um, look, we know that it's a, a big topic that's highly complex and, uh, and turns on the facts, um, particularly uh, facts around the subjective intention of, of different parties. Um, 
I said, I won't go through it in detail, but what I will cover today is the ordinary dealing exception, just in, uh, a little bit, because that's a, a key part of everything, I think. Uh, the PCG, have the taxpayer alert on there. I won't cover the alert specifically, and then I, I will go through a couple of examples. So let me move on to the, the next slide. Um, <clears throat> so the ordinary dealing exception, the, the ruling shares, um, formalises our view and shares it more thoroughly about uh, um, how we view the ordinary dealing exception in um, subsection 13 of section 100A. Uh, <clears throat> it's often cited to us in um, compliance activities that an arrangement must be a ordinary family dealing because it's between members of a family or um, members of a family and entities that are controlled by them, such as a bucket company, which they're, they're, they're directors. Um, and that just because an arrangement involves those parties, it must be a family deal, an ordinary family dealing. The ACO view uh, has been uh, quite a long period of time that that is not necessarily the case. Um, and that you do need to look at all the steps leading um, up to the arrangement and include in the arrangement uh, <clears throat> and consider those together what would be um, ordinary family or commercial objectives that they're seeking to achieve. The, uh, <clears throat> it, it does, uh, the definition does go back to um, Newton's case, which is yeah, um, pretty much prehistoric. Um, but that is the sort of the genesis from which Section 100A was developed. Um, <clears throat> we, we feel that this is a, a really important area for advisors to understand and as well a really important area to seek judicial clarity on as well um, because there are competing and differing views uh, among practitioners uh, amongst themselves but also with the ATO as to how this is interpreted and we, we are cognizant of that. Um, and I'm sure I'm gonna get some questions about that later um, but this is uh, an area that we um, uh, will touch on more, I think, as we go through the presentation. Chris, what I might do for you as well, and also just for the uh, participants, I might jump back a little bit just to, to show everyone where the ordinary dealing exception actually fits in to the, to the 100A provisions. And then that way people can get a sense of, well, as a starting point, a client might be within 100A, but then under the ordinary dealing exception, that could be taken back out. So I might just run through some of that and then we can circle back to the some of the examples we're gonna work through. Um, perhaps just to, just to start off from this perspective and show you how these provisions fit together and, and the ordinary dealing. 100A really has four components by and large. Now you could break it down further, but for the purpose of today's discussion, there are really four components. The first component is what the ATO referred to as the connection requirement. So this is where um, there is a, a conferral of a present entitlement to trust income that's arisen out of a reimbursement agreement. And we'll touch on this in a second, but interestingly, it's called a reimbursement agreement, but you're not really reimbursing anything by and large. You might be, but you're not looking for some form of reimbursement where um, I'm conferring an entitlement and I'm getting something in return. That may be the case, but not necessarily. The second 
component is that there needs to be a benefit provided to another person. So that other person is a person apart from the beneficiary upon who you've conferred the entitlement. The third component is, and perhaps before I get to that third component, the concept from a 100A perspective of benefit is very broad. So we're not purely talking cash. You might have a scenario where an entitlement is conferred to the beneficiary, but then the actual benefit that's provided to someone else could be by way of a gift, could be an interest-free loan, could be some other benefit that is provided by the trustee of the trust that conferred the entitlement in the first place to a third person. Might be someone else within the family group. Usually it will be, but it doesn't necessarily have to be, and that's crucial. Thirdly is the tax reduction purpose requirement. And what you will find is this is um, not the same concept of purpose, for example, dominant purpose that you might find under Part 4A. It simply needs to be um, a purpose, potentially amongst many, of why you did a particular, or the trustee did a particular transaction in the way it was done. Now, what you will find when you look at 100A and given the breadth of the provision, and practically speaking for most clients, the first three dot points that are on the slide there will probably be ticked in 90, 95% of cases. Relatively straightforward to find though, given the breadth of the provision, to find those first three points. The, the heavy lifting is really done under the ordinary dealing exception which is really what Chris was just touching on. And so we'll circle back to this. But essentially that particular agreement to not fall in to 100A, it must be one that is entered into in the course of uh, ordinary family or commercial dealing. And the reason why I say this is really where the heavy lifting is done is because, and partly in fairness to the ATO as well, there's no real judicial guidance on what that means. There is certainly components of it about tax contrivance and artificiality that have been weaved into this concept, but by and large, we, we simply don't have um, a, where we, a scenario where we've got a bright line. And you can say quite definitively, one should be ordinary dealing and one should not. The ATO's tried to give us some examples to that effect in the PCG, which we'll run through. Um, but the, the simplest way I, that I think about 100A is really the diagram here. And this is perhaps the most simplest way to explain it to your clients if you had to. It is really the divergence between um, the, the present entitlement or your paperwork, so you might have trust minutes, et cetera, compared to the economic substance of the income that you've given to the beneficiary. So in really simple terms, I'm the trustee of the trust. I confer a million dollar present entitlement on ABC Proprietary Limited, but the economic benefit of that million dollars goes to someone else. Now, it could in fact go back to the very trustee that conferred the present entitlement in the first place. It may go to a third person, could be someone else within the family group, might go to an associated trust, but in simple terms, the present entitlement is not going in the same direction as the economic benefit. 
just a couple key features about the, the mechanics of 100A and then we'll come back to this ordinary um, dealing exception. If a client finds themselves in a scenario where 100A uh, is said to apply, then in essence what happens is the beneficiary to whom they were made presently entitled, that present entitlement in effect is unwound. And the trustee is taxed uh, at the highest marginal tax rate under section 99A of the 36 Tax Act. The practical consequence of this might mean that the trustee doesn't get access to concessions. For example, CGT discount, uh, losses that a beneficiary might have otherwise had available. Those uh, tax preferred elements, if you want to call them that, aren't somehow transferred to the trustee. So effectively, the trustee cops one half of the distribution in tax, by and large. It's around 46%. Crucially, 100A does not change the trustee. This is really important. Doesn't change from an um, from a legal perspective and equity perspective, the entitlement that the trustee actually conferred on the beneficiary. And I haven't seen this, although quite possible in practice, I haven't seen a practical example of this. It's quite possible that the trustee makes someone presently entitled. So legally that person is entitled to call on the income, but the ATO comes along and says, well, someone else got the benefit, so we're going to apply 100A. So the trustee could end up in a scenario where the trustee's taxed on that income, whilst at the same time a beneficiary legally might be calling on the money. So th there is that quite distinct possibility. As I say, I haven't seen it in practice, but it's possible. One of the things that has perhaps caused a lot of upset amongst the tax profession is that people didn't necessarily realise that 100A has no period of review. Um, even when we think about Part 4A is limited to four years by and large, but essentially 100A applies in the same way as the fraud or evasion exception to the limited period of review. So I've certainly seen cases where the ATO has gone back to the early 90s. Uh, and the, the difficulty, obviously, record keeping, memory, etc., of them being able to try and discharge the onus of proof in a case where quite literally the circumstances or the potential agreement the ATO has ring-fenced could be decades old. 100A doesn't apply to minors. That is also the case even in the context of uh, a deceased estate, testamentary trust, etc. So we're only talking about effectively um, individuals over 18 plus companies and trusts, etc. Not minors, no kids. And what you will find, and you've probably heard this generally as well, is that 100A appears on the face of these documents to be being applied by 100A to tackle arrangements which possibly, and, and Chris might think different ultimately, but quite possibly to tackle arrangements that aren't um, what it was originally introduced for. Bearing in mind, it was introduced at a time where we, or the government at that stage was dealing with um, the, the bottom of the harbour schemes where beneficiaries were introduced. There were no family trust election rules back then, quite different loss rules. So beneficiaries were being introduced, possibly lost beneficiaries, where they would absorb uh, any income. No tax or minimal tax might be payable, but the benefit of that income's gone off somewhere else, possibly within the family. And just lastly, before I move on from this, 
practically speaking, 100A would rarely be applied by the ATO in pure isolation from other rules that the ATO has available. And so you could be looking at a factual circumstance where 100A could be a goer for the ATO, but equally um, COT test, same business test, Schedule 2F, trust loss rules, family trust elections, Division 7A, all of that could potentially be thrown in the mix. And practically speaking, the way I've seen the ATO do this is that 100A and might be almost the last bastion of hope. And so the ATO gets through and they say, 100A, well, we've tried that, doesn't really work. Um, FTEs, we've tried that, doesn't really work. Um, bit difficult. We've tried the loss test, doesn't really work. Oh, let's use 100A. Let's at least look at it. And so it's not necessarily um, put in and, and used in isolation from everything else available to the ATO. Just a couple um, practical considerations. Hey, I mean, oh, sorry, you jump in. I, absolutely. You might have a different view. Absolutely. No, no, no. I, I, just, um, I just want to make one point. I, I, was, I did chuckle a little bit. You said, <laughs> you know, we might, as in the ATO might use it as a last bashing approach. Um, <laughs> but certainly, look, you're right that we don't, um, you know, a case isn't typically created to, you know, let's look at, at Section 100A. Um, and we identify it through um, the course of other activities. So, like you said, if we might be looking at family trust elections or Division 7A compliance, and we've identified it there as something that then may concern us. And that's typically the reason why um, a review uh, has a focus on 100A or an ordinance has a focus on 100A. Uh, but also, going back to those four factors, like there's that intention test, and it's, um, it is so hard to to identify those things, and it's typically only through the um, uh, information gathering process that, that we form a view that maybe 100A is a risk that we want to look at. So um, no, that's, uh, I think, a really important point um, just to, to make as well about that. But uh, sure. I'll hand it back to you. No, 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 that's right. And I, and I was probably being a bit cheeky, to be honest with you, as well. So yeah, that's okay. Um, just a, a couple points before, and I, I will get back to you um, as well, Chris, to, to come back to this ordinary dealings point. Practically, what I have seen as well, and some of this comes out of the case law, um, but also to, given obviously the client uh, or the taxpayer bears the onus of proof, um, and I, I might just quickly answer this question, um, Aish, just to let you know, it is uh, not the entirety of the income, it's the, it's the component that's sort of the trust income that's, that's effectively gone off as the benefit to someone. So you might partially pay out um, the present entitlement, you might partially sort of on-lend it potentially or gift it, so it doesn't, it's not targeting the entirety of the income of the trust. Just a couple points on this, hindsight risk. I think, the and this was flagged in um, the AIT case, is that what might be factually speaking at the particular point in time that is being assessed, actually quite distinct and separate factual circumstances, in hindsight, the ATO might say, aha, we've, we see a pattern here, or these events look to be connected to one another. Um, and clearly, with the, the help of hindsight, that's obviously a significant advantage to the ATO because the client then has to be the one that, that tries to disprove that conclusion or that finding. And so this is something that um, was raised in the AIT case and ultimately was found against the ATO, which we won't talk in detail about today, but very 
absolutely crucial for clients that if in hindsight the ATO could actually tie together a number of facts and say, well, they all look to be connected. They all look to be part of one arrangement. And this is likely to occur when similar patterns emerge from your clients from year to year. Perhaps the same strategies being used to distribute income and then gift, or the same strategies being used to find loss entities to distribute to. The ATO might say, well, this is a pattern and therefore those events are connected. That would be very difficult to discharge. There are also two further components of 100A, which are referred to broadly as prediction and predication. They're two closely related issues, but they are different, slightly more technical. The first one is that you would need to have evidence to show that the reimbursement agreement, so sending off some benefit to a third party or an associated trust, that would have had to occur even absent the tax benefit that you got from it. So you would almost have to predict or show that you would have done a particular thing or the trustee would have distributed in a particular way absent the, the tax benefit that you've achieved. That would be very difficult and we'll get onto this in a second. Um, also too, the, the predication test is really about, in a way, trying to find the hypothetical. Could the arrangement be explained simply by reference to an ordinary dealing without the tax consequence. So if you put that to one side, and this is really getting to the, the point of is there some contrivance or artificiality about this? Can we assert truthfully that we would have done this anyway? And that can be quite difficult too, particularly when you're trying to show that what you would have done was ordinary. It was a bit vanilla and boring and you didn't do it for some sort of tax purpose. Now, Chris, I might jump back to you then just in respect of the example on ordinary dealing and I'll also open it up to the group if there are any questions. But I, I just want to put perhaps this one to you, Chris, because it's something that's been raised with me a number of times. Um, this concept of the ordinary dealing, and this example came through um, from, from an accountant by and large that I've, I've changed slightly. This idea that certainly for some cultures and some traditions, they don't necessarily see assets in the same way as perhaps what Western people do, where the asset is mine, it's not yours, etc. It tends to be pooling or grouping of assets and funds. And so could you have a, a scenario, Chris, it was the ATO considering where to what extent would they be taking account of these cultural or social factors in this ordinary dealing? Is it an ordinary family to me, sort of my family? Is it an objective test? Certainly from my perspective, I think naturally these factors would have to be taken into account as to the steps that have been carried out by a client in determining whether something was ordinary or not. Was there some tax artificiality about it? If it's quite normal for certain cultures to behave in this way, which usually will be pooling of funds. But it'd be great, Chris, to get your perspective on this. Is this something that has previously been raised with the ATO? Is it something that you're looking at? Thanks, Vince. Look, um, look, this is certainly something that has been raised in a number of cases. And I, um, I'd say as well that even within, um, within Western cultures, um, uh, it's been asserted to us that um, certain cultures or subcultures have um, their own 
sort of um, distinguishing factors which make something or other uh, an ordinary dealing. Um, yeah, the draft ruling and, and other guidance sets out our views as to you know, what we think are um, broadly ordinary dealings, and it's um, it's not it's certainly not possible for us to to say um, or provide like sort of a bright line test to say that within this culture or that culture uh, or subculture these things are, are ordinary. Um, but you know, we if a, a taxpayer makes um, well, is under review or audit, and they um, say to us that this is ordinary in our culture, and we will consider it. But what I would say today is that making a um, sort of a pretty vanilla statement like I'm a, a member of this subculture or this culture, and it's ordinary for us to pull our funds, that uh, is uh, very unlikely to, of itself, um, be sufficient to prove to us that it is an ordinary dealing. We would expect there to be more information to support why it's ordinary in. Um, in that um, <clears throat> culture, and, and just uh, maybe if I say differently, but cheekily, that um, you know, uh, a cultural element to avoid tax um, would not be enough to say that it's an ordinary dealing. Um, we wouldn't accept that. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, but but certainly this is the kind of thing that that we would consider. Um, but once again, it, we would need um, quite a bit of detail to support. Why it's, um, or what specifically has been done, and why that is a uh, is ordinary in that culture. Fantastic, thank you. And this goes to one of the questions that um, has been posed. It's been sent to us privately, so I won't mention the person's name. But they they asked this question, Chris, which goes to perhaps what you've already touched on. They say after getting a distribution from a family trust, and I'm paraphrasing here, isn't it up to the family members? how they use that particular money that they've received. Um, and then they go on to say, well, is the use of that money really a subject matter for law, the ATO, or government? Um, now, I, I might sort of give my sort of thoughts on that um, and to that person who's posed the question. For, from my perspective, it's not so much that the ATO or, or the government is necessarily sort of imposing their view on people about what's ordinary or what's a family arrangement or not. But the question ultimately is, and I think this might go to what's in the, the red box here just on this particular slide, is would you have carried out these steps? I Would you, as in the family group, the trustee of that particular trust, would you have carried out those steps in the same way that you did absent the tax outcome? And that's really what the ATO seems to be getting at when you look at the draft ruling, particularly paragraph 64 to, through to 79, essentially. Um, and if you would have carried out, and we'll get to an example of this, one being if I distribute, for example, to this is something the ATO hasn't liked based on its publications, if I distribute to a lost beneficiary, or beneficiary with losses, but then the funds go off to mum and dad, or the funds go off to a related trust, etc. Couldn't the first trust have just distributed directly to that person that got the benefit anyway? Why was it that you had to distribute first to the loss entity? Now, if that's only explained by reference to the fact, well, we wanted to use up the losses over there, then that might be difficult to convince the ATO of whether some, it was ordinary or not. Um, whereas that particular trust that could have always uh, been a recipient of distributions based on this pooling concept, and so in that instance it might be acceptable. 
And sometimes this can be the difficult component about 100A, but ultimately I think the test comes down to uh, would you have carried out those same steps absent the tax outcome is a really good litmus test, I think. Now there's an, another question that's come through, um, is an ordinary dealing an exception to the tax outcome as long as it's ordinary dealing, minimising the family tax is acceptable? Um, that's a very good question. This is something that I've certainly had to grapple with in trying to work through these rules over a number of years, is that if I can put it in this way, that the tax of avoidance, tax reduction purpose possibly gets you into 100A. And so then it feels certainly circular if you're then saying, well, um, tax avoidance or reduction can't necessarily get you out of 100A under family dealing. So there has to be some component of tax reduction in the concept of a family dealing. Otherwise, you'd be in 100A never being able to get out. And so look, it's a, the person who's posed that to me, it's a very, very good question. I don't think we will get to the bottom of that until there's some judicial guidance, I think, is a, because the argument becomes circular. Chris, did you have uh, sort of any input on, on that point? Look, I, I think you um, hit the nail on the head with that second second part of the question that we um, you know, we won't get any firm uh, guidance until there's judicial guidance. But it's in, we we do make reference to an ordinary dealing being something that can be explained by, by factors other than the the tax outcomes being obtained. And look, go, going back to that first question, I think um, <clears throat> one thing I would um, I would pose just in, in that hypothetical, uh, what do they, a key factor is, um, a couple of comments about that, that first question. Like, the guidance doesn't say what you can or can't do with your money at all. It, it just explains what the tax outcomes are of, of these distributions. And you sort of said earlier that you hadn't seen an arrangement like this, but where um, 108 applied, but the beneficiary would still call for their entitlement. Because the beneficiary still at law can call for their entitlement even when 108 applies. Um, but you know, the the beneficiary does have free will and choice to do um, whatever they'd like to do with the the economic benefit of of their uh, entitlement. What where we are concerned and where 100A um, could apply is where that beneficiary doesn't actually have the free will or choice to do so, because a key requirement of 100A is that the entitlement arose from the agreement, um, <clears throat> and potentially what we've seen in um, in real cases, is where the beneficiary um, was unaware of their rate of their uh, present entitlement to income, and therefore, uh, and and then in the same uh, year, the um, their entitlement was um, <clears throat> journaled across to mum and dad's loan account, uh, and the, the adult child was never aware of their entitlement. Now they haven't made a choice to give that money back to mum and dad for pooling purposes. Um, because they, they weren't even aware of their entitlement. Uh, or often in, in other arrangements uh, we've seen is where um, the, the adult child may have been told about their entitlement, um, but told that pretty much this is only occurring because you're, you've signed a deed of gift back to the parents or because you've already otherwise agreed. And this uh, may have occurred in advance of the, um, the entitlement being conferred upon the, the beneficiary. So those are the types of arrangements where they are wholly motivated by the tax outcomes. 
and not ones where the the beneficiary had a had you know, the, the real free will or choice to actually give the money back to their parents. And and Chris, I, I've just got some uh, questions which look to be coming through. Just to remind everyone, if you could type those please into the chat box rather than the Q&A, that would be fantastic. Otherwise, I'm trying to uh, monitor both screens here. Um, just a couple comments that have come through and I'll, I'll take them as comments. Um, a couple people say, well, you need to add in asset protection to this mix. And so you end up in a scenario where one party seems to be at risk. So it doesn't necessarily make sense to distribute all funds to the party that's at risk because otherwise the family group is having to take on that risk as a whole. So that, that's possible. Certainly take that one as a comment. Uh, this is an interesting one. Again, I won't mention who it's from, but they say, it seems to me that minimising tax, which has long been accepted in itself, is no longer allowed. I'm not sure I necessarily agree with that based on the ATO's um, examples, but I'll take that as a comment. They then go on to ask, how do you really differentiate between a tax minimisation strategy and what is then tax avoidance for 100A. Um, again, that is one that I think ultimately could be up to the courts. It will be very, very difficult. Certainly, and put it this way, on the cases that have actually gone through the federal court, full federal court and high court, most people would look at those factual scenarios, Prestige Motors, um, Rafflin, for example, and say, look, it probably makes sense that the ATO um, went after these arrangements at the time with 100A and then were successful. Uh, but then what we're seeing now is obviously, uh, or quite possibly 100A being applied to more vanilla circumstances. The, just something else as well that's been raised, um, the ATO by and large accepts from the PCG that you can have pooling of family funds, for example, amongst spouses, and also in most circumstances, not all, unless there's contrivance, uh, dependent children as well. Um, so where you have a scenario where um, th there were a couple examples where mum and dad might assist the child by way of trust conferral of distribution, and that child uses those funds to pay for university expenses. So th there are um, a number of circumstances where this pooling concept is still acceptable to the ATO. I think um, I, 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 it would be actually useful to the comment on that a bit. Because um, with, with that first example, that the money going to the, the, um, the spouse, um, I think that we'd say that that's certainly an ordinary dealing where um, spouses pool their funds, have joint bank accounts, and, um, and jointly pay for the expense of their household and their dependent children or other dependents of the, of the household. Um, but on that second one, uh, we talk about sort of pooling and um, using like the adult child beneficiary, for example, with um, paying for their university fees. Um, what, what we think there is that, in fact, 100A might not, might not have application to that arrangement because the beneficiary has got the benefit of their entitlement. Um, uh, the, the funds didn't go directly necessarily from the um, the trustee to the adult child beneficiary, but in substance, the the beneficiary got the benefit. Um, so, you know, we think that that's um, probably an arrangement where 100A doesn't apply because they've got the the benefit of their um, of their entitlement. So, working out what those costs are um, will be uh, one thing that um, advisors need to consider and discuss with their clients. Sure. Yeah. Now, I might, Chris, ask. We'll. we'll um get cracking because I know we're starting to 
to push for time, but some of those questions that were coming through, there are some more, so I'll try and get through to them um, as we continue. But I might ask, Chris, if you can take us through um, the the PCG um, and also to the what is now four zones, the white zone, the green zone, the blue zone, and the red zone, just to get a sense from you um, how the ATO proposes to tackle some of these issues. Thanks, Ian. And look, I, I think what I might say here is that if um, we could hold the questions until I've gone through these zones, but I will zip through them pretty quickly um, <clears throat> for everybody, because I, I appreciate there will probably be a lot of questions, especially about the red zone. Um, the four zones, uh, as you point out, the white zone, that's where we, we say that we won't dedicate compliance resources um, to an arrangement. Now, um, I probably should have raised this earlier, but you, you did say something about, um, you know, some commentary about going back decades and, and looking at arrangements because there is an unlimited period of review. But what we say here is that, um, except in you know, essentially you know, some fairly exceptional circumstances, we're not planning to go back any um, any time past uh, 1 July 2014. So that's the 2015's financial year. Uh, there are three um, three caveats that, which are on the slide. So if we're otherwise considering your affairs for those years, so that would mean you know, we were looking at those um, those years for other reasons. Um, that's eight or so years ago. Um, typically, we're not looking at things like that unless there's some sort of fraud or evasion. Uh, and I think that the community would expect that um, in a matter of fraud or evasion, we'd consider all of the um, tools available to us. Um, but also another caveat today is where an arrangement continues before and after 1 July 2014. So um, if you continue with the same arrangement, the same beneficiary, both before and after, then that would fall into that category. Uh, and the last one is about whether it's the trust uh, and the beneficiary haven't lodged their returns in on time um, for prior to 2014. <clears throat> then we've got the green zone, and um, and we've already sort of touched on this a little bit. Um, we we outline uh, a few different arrangements that are green zone. Um, one of those which we touched on was where the funds are uh, used um, within the family group. Um, you know, paid to, to one spouse, uh, for example, and those funds benefit both spouses and their dependents. We'd see that as an ordinary dealing. The other one, um, which I think is really important, is um, we do recognise the use of trust um, to run small businesses, or uh, not so small businesses, and <clears throat> that the, the trust income is used for working capital purposes. So what we say here is that um, where the funds are, are retained by the trust, or working capital, um, <clears throat> because they've either um, because the distribution has been made to either an individual um, or a company, and yeah, then we will look at that as being a, um, an ordinary commercial dealing. What we do say though is that the funds must, if it's to a company, the funds must be placed on at least uh, Section 109N terms under Division 7A, and the reason being there is that Division 7A and Section 100A can have um, competing or overlapping application to the same amount. So uh, it is important to bear in mind that um, as the trustee has to comply with the Div 7A obligation. But if the funds are distributed to an individual and loaned back, then we say that the, the funds, um, uh, the person, the beneficiary must have been someone who was either a controller of the trust or involved in the management of the, of the business of the trust. And I, and I say business meaning um, a genuine business or investment activities. Now, the reason we've, we've uh, added that additional requirement is that what we want, um, what we expect to see that in an ordinary, uh, an ordinary dealing would be that 
um, that beneficiary is going, genuinely going to um, benefit from their entitlement in the future. Um, and that's because they're, they're someone who controls the trust and controls the direction or involved in the management of the, the business or the activities of that trust because they're someone who are going to genuinely benefit from it in the future. Um, so I might move on to the next slide, which is the blue zone. Uh, and the blue zone is the, the middle ground. Um, it's where you don't have the, oh, I should just say one more thing about the green zone, sorry, because I, I have been trying to rush a little bit here, but the, um, where a, uh, an arrangement fits within the green zone, then the ATA will not dedicate compliance resources to go and consider that arrangement. But um, what we would expect is that a taxpayer or other agent can provide us with information to show us why it's in the green zone. Because we might be looking at an arrangement for something and then go, ah, oh, we think that 100 could apply here. Um, and so we, we can't um, you know, tell that from the, the information that we have just automatically. But what we expect is that when we ask you about 100A, you would be able to show us and go, okay, here is why it's in the green zone um, as a minimum. Chris, could I just interject there? Is it the ATO's preferred approach that um, practitioners and clients perhaps keep some sort of record as to um, why they might be in the green zone or the white zone, you know, some rationale for that. That's similar to what the ATO expected um, in respect to the PCG for professional practice entities that was released, say, a month ago or so. Um, is that something that you'd be expecting if you came along to say, well, you know, how did you determine you're in the green zone? Yeah, absolutely. Um, because I think that it's, um, it would be really prudent for advisors to keep some record of, of that um, rather than just saying um, that, you know, we're in the green zone, so don't look. Um, that, that wouldn't be a uh, sufficient answer for us not to look. What would you expect to see? Some evidence as to why um, the arrangement is in the green zone. Um, now, a distribution to one, palm, to one spouse um, and not the other uh, would probably be fairly apparent, but certainly the other types would expect to see a, a basic level of, of information. And as well, it, I think that it helps from a um, helps resolve the the case a bit quicker and build trust on, on both sides. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. All right, I'll just move on so to the blue, on, blue on, for you, Chris. Yeah, thanks. So the blue zone is those arrangements where um, we don't say that um, you know, we won't look, um, but it's also the arrangements that are not the higher risk ones. And so a blue zone arrangement might be one where um, <clears throat> something disqualifies an arrangement from being in the green zone um, <clears throat> or um, you know, just something that we, you know, that's you know, pretty unique and bespoke that we've never seen before. Um, that's sort of the blue zone. These are the arrangements where we may dedicate compliance resources to look at them more carefully or we may not, um, but they're not ones that we uh, tell the community are a, a higher risk. And then the red zone. And these are the types of arrangements that, that do concern us. The ones that particularly appear to be motivated, uh, pardon me, motivated by the tax outcomes um, or some level of contrivance um, <clears throat> as a part of them. Um, or like a, a deliberate attempt to enable one party to get the economic benefit of the, the income. Um, some, yeah, that, that party being someone who isn't the, the present type beneficiary. And if we, Skip to the next slide. Um, there's some examples there of um, 
of things that concern us. Uh, and look, I'm not going to, to read through that list um, just at this moment. I might just sort of um, yeah pause it there to take questions because I, I appreciate that people probably have um, some views on on these. Yeah, sure. So, but, but also happy if, if you want to, to move through to the uh, practical situations you've got and take questions afterwards. That, that's fine. We can certainly open it up. Uh, if anyone, I'm, I've been trying to answer a few questions that have come through um, privately to us, just sort of on the fly. So just to the people have been asking, I've, I'm trying to get through to as many of those as as possible. Uh, so just check out um, the the chat field there. Uh, but certainly happy for anyone to uh, to pose questions in respect to the red zone, which broadly you could probably include in a couple different items, which include. Um, gift arrangements, set off for subscriptions, um, lost beneficiaries, non-resident beneficiaries, um, and obviously the uh, transactions or uh, arrangements that fall within the taxpayer alert for, for 100A as well. Now, I'll just read out uh, this question that's, that's come through. How do we document when, and I think this will be probably affect most people on the line, how do we document when an adult beneficiary of an investment trust wants to keep their distributions invested in the trust and, and not necessarily withdraw the, the cash. Because let's say they're saving for a house, let's assume they know about the distribution but don't want to take the cash yet. Do you have, uh, Chris, sort of any, any thoughts about that? So in effect, where the beneficiary, and this might be the case um, to the person who's posted that question, where the beneficiary decides, well, I, I just don't need the money yet. You know, I'm, I, as you say, saving for a house, might be looking to a, make an investment next year, don't need the money right now. Yeah, so look, I, can't, I can't give um, a completely definitive uh, response. Sure. They cover every type of arrangement, okay? <laughs> yeah. um, but but what, I, what I can say is that um, right, some things that we'd expect to see in that sort of situation is firstly, that the unpaid person entitlement to the adult child is not journaled um, back to against mum and dad's loan account. Um, that's one thing certainly would expect. Um, like, but that that being said, though, um, we do know that you know arrangements um, are, can be pre-planned um, over a longer period of time, and that um, if an arrangement is um, or that unpaid present time is um, journaled back to mum and dad at some time in the future, that that could have formed part of a pre-planned um, arrangement to reimburse um, those those parents, but we yeah we we would expect to see that the adult child beneficiary has the ability um, to call upon um, payment of their entitlement uh, <clears throat> when they choose to do so, um, and so um, perhaps in, in that sort of arrangement, the strongest bit of evidence might be that if um, say the entitlement was conferred in the June 2022 year, and um, they wanted to buy a house in, uh, let's say, in 2026. That we could see things like financial statements evidencing their unpaid present entitlement over that, like you know, maintained over that period. Further distributions, um, if relevant, and then eventually the um, the adult child um, calling for payment of their their entitlement um, and and receiving it. That would be, I think, the best bit of evidence. Um, that there's no reimbursement agreement. And and to also, thank you for that, Chris. To, to the person who's posed that question, um, 
and this is sort of drawn from some of the examples uh, posed by the ATO, at a minimum, I would expect to the person that's posed that question that the beneficiary knows about their entitlement. So one of the, now, from a trust, pure trust law perspective, a beneficiary doesn't need to somehow approve the receipt of that entitlement. But if the person doesn't know, and the person hasn't known for many years, then that might be an indicator that what is being looked at here might not be ordinary dealing. But also too, there are a couple examples where uh, someone can actually leave their entitlement on the table in a sense. It remains on the balance sheet as a liability owing to that individual. But then the ATO looks to see, well, what has the money actually been used for that hasn't yet been paid out? So the ATO, based on um, the publications, will look for things such as, has the money been put to, a, to some use that could create the inference that there was never any intention to pay out the, U, the UPE? So for example, the, the trustee goes and makes some super high risk investment that means that they might actually be put in a position in the future where they can't actually pay the, the uh, UPE out to that adult child, for example. That might end up undermining um, the sort of scenario that that person has, has put forward as a question. Um, now, th this is a very good question. I think, I won't mention the person's name, but they've posed a couple questions here. And I think it's the washing machine arrangement that the ATO has expressly said um, it doesn't like. So the trust distributes to the bucket company in year one. The bucket company gives dividends to family members in, in year two, either directly or indirectly back via the trust and all the entries are done by journal. And I'm sure there are probably a lot of people on the line who do this sort of thing inadvertently, not necessarily appreciating there might be some 100A aspect to this. But this is certainly something that um, the washing machine arrangement has been one that has certainly upset the ATO based on the, the publications. I, I won't go into it um, in detail, mainly because um, in, it's indirectly connected with a, the present appeal before the, the federal court. So we won't go into that in detail. Now I might come through where um, just going to get to some practical examples, maybe, and Chris, you've already touched on a couple of these where we have a scenario. Um, perhaps if I could get you just briefly to take us through, which is really the green zone example that's on the left hand of the slide here. Essentially, the trading trust is using, not paying out the UPEs and then using the pooled funds. You might have touched on this one earlier for the benefit of continuing the operations of that trust. Yeah, thanks, James. So <clears throat> what we've got here on, on that left-hand side was the uh, the two trucks, um, big red trucks. How fantastic. <laughs> um, we've got the ABC Trading Trust, um, which is deriving uh, income from, from its business. And what it's doing is it um, has a million dollars of, um, of net income, um, and it distributes that 50-50 to um, some individuals and to a bucket company, ABC Production Limited. But it still uses those funds to to um, carry on its business for working capital. Now, in order to be within that green zone, what you need to have is that the um, ABC Production Limited puts its um, component of the uh, unpaid present talent on compliant Division 7A terms, so a normal 109N loan. 
And then that one, I think, is, is probably fairly straightforward. That's the most similar to the existing fact sheet uh, guidance or the previous fact sheet guidance. What then uh, is, is a little bit different is for the, the individuals. And what we say there is that the individuals need to be um, loaning them up the funds back. Now, we don't say that it needs to be um, a loan on 109N terms or anything. Um, it can just be an app call loan, but they do need to be a member of, um, well, they have to be a member of the family firstly, but also someone who either is in control of the trust or employed in the management of that of that trust. So let's just um, add some additional factors here to um, sort of elucidate this a bit more. Let's say there's uh, mum and dad and two children. And mum and dad uh, are the directors of ABC, um, of the, of, of, sorry, they're, they're the trustees of, of ABC Trading Trust. So they're the trustees who, so if somebody went to them and they've loaned it back, that would make prima facie um, fit within that. Let's say then the, the eldest child has gone to, um, to work in the business and carry on the family legacy and they also got some money. Um, although um, <clears throat> they're not the, one of the trustees, let's just say that for uh, argument's sake here that they are a senior manager in the business um, with, you know, that, that carries a bit of weight uh, for what they say. So that prima facie may be that they're employed in the management of the business um, and that therefore that the impact that they've learned back uh, might be okay. Yeah, but I, I want to make stress here, though, that they do need to be employed in the management of business. Let's just say that they were um, a part-time receptionist while they're still at uni. That's not going to cut it to that point. And then let's say that the younger child um, doesn't work in the business at all and um, has a job elsewhere, but they've also received a dis distribution. Now, their distribution might not be covered by this, and then th that would cause that distribution in isolation to fall into the blue zone. Essentially, so um, it wouldn't um, it wouldn't um, impact the entirety of the distributions from that trust. Just that particular distribution, uh, which then may fall into the blue zone. And just because it's in the blue zone doesn't mean that 100A applies. Thanks, Chris, for that. And just to let you know, I've also got on the right hand side of of the screen here. Um, an example slightly modified from the ATO, but hopefully depicts, um, I think it's example nine perhaps, where um, uh, the individual controller of the family trust, uh, his parents are both uh, foreign tax residents, and it appears that their overall their tax rate would be lower. So this, I think, answers one of the questions that has been put to us um, in respect to self-funded parents. So effectively the flip of what is the, the bulk of the, the taxpayer alert. In this scenario, what might, in effect from this scenario, be a capping of the tax rate uh, at, say, 30% if it was a frank dividend, um, ends up being then distributed out or gifted to other family members or related parties, either um, interest-free at call, or obviously gifts are being made directly to those people, capping the tax rate at 30%. That would be something um, which the ATO would most likely be having a look at. And also to bear in mind, th these rules by and large will apply also to if you've got the lost beneficiary. So you've got a lost company there, just as an example, um, on that particular slide, you would still potentially have to manage this particular arrangement um, using Division 7A, 
um, under 109N loan, but I've made a bit of an assumption here, there's no distributable surplus for the purpose of the example. And happy to keep taking sort of questions as we go. Um, I've just put this example here, and I'm happy, Chris, to run through um, this one. This is perhaps, well, effectively what are almost two identical arrangements, but what ends up happening is one of the arrangements, which is on the right-hand side there, is where the UPE is paid out effectively through journal entries and then on lent to the property trust, whereas under the, the first arrangement, the entitlement's paid out in cash. Now, if you have a scenario where the trustee of the first trust is conferring present entitlement on a trust in the chain, um, putting aside some of the peculiar rules in respect of interpost trust for 100A purposes, you confer the million dollars and you actually pay out the million dollars to the trust in the chain. That next trustee, by and large, can do what they would like to do. It's their prerogative to deal with the million dollars that they've received based on however they like to, to do so. Assuming they might have any other liabilities to pay, they shouldn't have any tax consequences, they've got some losses. Um, but that ABC Family Trust probably should be able to do with the money whatever uh, that trustee chooses to do. A similar but not identical example is where that same trading trust distributes a million dollars or confers entitlement of a million dollars to the family trust. So by and large, there's no tax consequence because you've, you've got losses and the losses will absorb any income. But then the actual cash moves from the trading trust to the property trust in the sort of top part of the screen. And that's done for example, just an example, um, on-lent interest-free and at call. In the example on the right-hand side of the screen there, that might be a scenario that causes um, some heartburn and 100A might apply, subject to various other factors, obviously. It may be a very different scenario if the ABC Trading Trust actually paid out the million dollars to the family trust in cash and then the family trust decides, well, what do I want to do with this money? I'm going to lend it to the property trust. It's my money. I get to do with it what I want. That could lead to quite a different um, result, in particular because of some of the contrivance and difficulties that there can be with just journalising transactions through trust structures and interposed trust and just really moving the deck chairs amongst the family group. That's usually something, and I've spoken about this previously, that journalising transactions is not necessarily going to satisfy the ATO and most likely probably won't. Um, however, if you're actually moving the money, um, and I often will say show me the money, actually move the money um, through the structure to follow the legal entitlements. Not to say that that's done in a contrived way, but strictly speaking, that's probably what should be happening. Yeah, and, and I think you know you raise a good point there about um, journalised entries because a journal entry um, should reflect an actual economic transaction that has occurred, and if um, if it doesn't represent that, it just represents um, what um, sort of what you sort of wishfully hope it had occurred. Um, then you know we would be or uh, would be concerned by that. Um, but one one other point I'd like just to make about that example on the right hand side is that. Um, <clears throat> We'd want to we'd want to see that um, that if the the real one million dollars went to the property uh, family trust, 
and it was then on loan to the the property trust immediately um, by way of say like another third, uh, further bank transfer that it wasn't all part of uh, an agreement that was all pre-planned that um, the family trust had chosen to do that not because it was uh, it knew it was going to be made entitled to that but because it had done so for some other reason such as whether it had owed money to the property trust uh, separately or um, because it was investing money with them and expected to make a, a return on its investment. Um, but these are the sort of examples of things that um, you know, might have occurred actually. Yep. And and just on this one, Chris, I've, I've received this message privately where the, the person poses, do we really need to make it that complicated by moving the cash around? Um, as long as documents show that the intention of the trustee was to do, for example, A, B and C. Um, Look, my, certainly my, my experience is having dealt with the ATO um, on both sides for a long time, the ATO much prefers seeing the cash moved. So I can understand from a cash flow perspective, um, that can sometimes be difficult for clients, um, but if before you are really doing is shuffling the deck chairs using accounting entries, you probably could be causing some risk for your clients. In particular, and Chris touched on this um, point a, a minute or so ago, where the, the accounting entries don't always line up neatly with what the actual story is from the client. Um, but most likely because the client themselves didn't actually complete the accounting entries. They rely on the accountant or the advisor to do that. And so sometimes when the story doesn't line up, that just can make things worse. And so whilst I accept it can be a bit more of a headache to move the money, uh, the likelihood is that that would put the client overall in a, in a better position than having accounting entries that maybe don't necessarily meet the mark. Yeah, I, I, I'd add to that that um, importantly, um, the, if the arrangement is just to sort of show, show the intention, um, then that, in, like, that intention should be something that they held at the time that it occurred, not that um, what, not what um, the accountant advised was the best or most practical outcome yes. after your rent. And, and often that's what general entries um, are designed to do um, in the absence of um, you know, real economic transaction. Yes, and, and hopefully, Chris, not in a scenario where the advisor might say a year or two later, in, in the face of an AT audit, oh, this is what we would prefer the story was. You know, that would be a real disaster, to, to be frank. So mo moving the money generally is a safer proposition. So I know we've run um, a little bit over time, so thank you everyone for, um, keeping online. My apologies again for um, going or commencing slightly late due to some of the technical difficulties, um, but happy to take sort of any last uh, questions. Just a couple points from me to double check um, for your clients and then I'll, I'll ask Chris if you have any sort of final comments. Um, I definitely suggest, based on what I have seen from the ATO, that you should, as, as accountants and advisors, be double checking historical trust distributions for compliance with 100A. So that's not to say go back to 1979 and dig up old tax returns, um, but definitely for the last couple of years, and just to ensure that this method of distribution that the ATO has now overtly said in some instances that it's not happy with, to determine whether your clients could be in that boat or not. I definitely recommend that you do that. Um, and to ensure that any future arrangements that you might put in place are at least reasonably arguable is very, very important because otherwise you could end up in a scenario where your client 
is subject to scheme penalties, etc., under 100A scenario, which could be a real disaster. And just very simply, as I mentioned earlier, is there a mismatch? This is, in, in really simple terms, the, the test for 100A. Is there a mismatch between the paperwork that you've put in place and the economic substance of where the entitlement has gone? And lastly, I haven't wanted to sort of play this up too much because I think it has been played up a, a bit um, over the last couple of weeks. Practitioners probably should be mindful as well of the ATO statements in the taxpayer alert about promoter penalty rules and referrals to the TPB. Not to say that that will happen in every case, etc., but it's something definitely that you all should be mindful of. Chris, I might ask if you have any sort of final comments before we conclude for the day. Thanks, Vincent. My only final comment is on that last point you raised um, about promoter penalties and referrals to the practitioner board. Look, this is something that we've um, seen a bit of uh, commentary about in, in the public domain. And look, I want to reassure advisors that um, the ATO is not looking to go out and refer uh, every advisor to tax practitioner board. We see that there are some particularly egregious arrangements um, that have been put in place um, in some instances, and that you know it is a, quite a high bar for um, referral to the tax practitioner board. But also that you know, the promoter penalty uh, rules are you know, quite serious, and we we raise these um, <clears throat> these as a matter of course in, in many of our taxpayer alerts because. It's, um, you know, they are alerting me to things that we've identified that are uh, that may be concerning us. But certainly, um, advisors should be reassured that um, you know, there's no uh, no intention to go and refer um, everyone to um, all, all possibility because, as you point out, there has to be. Um, you know, it's possible that they have to consider whether they're a reasonably arguable position or it's reasonably arguable that. You know, this was acceptable at the time. So there are there are other factors that are um, weighing against that too. But um, that's probably all I'd, I'd say on that, on that point. Sure, thanks, Chris.